All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I want to thank our sponsors for this show, making this show economically viable. They are Blue Goldwaters Technologies, Prophecy Platinum, Balmoral Resources, Golden Arrow Resources, and SGX Resources. Well, I'm really pleased to have back with me again today uh, Florian Siegfried. He is the CEO, and Precious, uh, CEO of Precious Metals Capital. That's a privately held firm based in Zurich, Switzerland that specializes in precious metals and mining investments. Precious Capital has very recently been ranked by the Wall Street Journal in Europe as one of the leading top 10 fund managers in the precious metals equity sector. And uh, Florian was formerly CEO of uh, Shape Capital Limited. It's a publicly traded investment company founded uh, by Bank Julius Baer uh, and Company Limited of Switzerland. Florian holds a master's degree in economics from the University of Zurich, where uh, one of his studies was Austrian economics, which is one of the reasons we're talking to him here on this show. Uh, he is a regular speaker at various resource investment conferences in Switzerland and Asia. Welcome, Florian. It's really good to have you back. Thanks for having me. You know, um, you. This has been a really tough couple of years. I know I haven't. I met up with you a couple of years ago before this decline in the uh, in the gold markets. Um, do you think we've seen the lows here? Are we in a bottoming process, or, or could there still be some more downside to come? Um, for gold, I hope <laughs> that we saw the low at eleven ninety six in June. Um, that that was the washout. Um, I still think uh, in the mean term the, the chart doesn't look too healthy, so mm-hmm. we have like an inverse shoulder head shoulder formation, and um, it looks like if we didn't hold at 1400, now 1380, 1360, uh, I wouldn't be surprised 1300, 1250 again in the short term. Mm-hmm. But I would also say um, it all depends on the overall market. Um, as the stock market went ballistic almost, especially in the U.S., um, uh, gold suffered. Uh, what it is interesting now is that the uh, yields are going up quite dramatically, uh, the 10-year uh, approaching 3% in the U.S. Um, uh, the argument that uh, the gold bears always had, which was basically if you have rising yields, um, uh, rising real rates, then gold will suffer. I think we saw the opposite um, over the last two months. So when yields went up, gold uh, went up as well and didn't suffer. So 
Um, I'm, so to, to summarize, I'm not sure whether we see, I, I think we've seen the low, but I think there is short-term pressure. Uh, I would still expect a correction in the overall market um, by the year end. So I wouldn't be surprised to see 1,400 gold by year end. You, you would not be surprised? Or you no. would be surprised to see that this reach that level? I wouldn't be because okay? the sentiment is still very negative on gold. Uh -huh. People are buying the recovery story. Um, everybody tells me, especially here in Zurich, that uh, you have to be in equities. Um, despite the fact that we have been in a sideways trend for now four months. Mm -hmm. And it looks for me that <clears throat> the overall equity markets are working on a, on a big rolling top. Mm -hmm. And um, only a very few stocks actually make new highs, mm -hmm. and there are a lot of stocks which make new lows. So the technical situation of the market is not healthy at all. That tells me uh, the economy is not doing so well, and that, on the other hand, should uh, be favorable for gold. Well, we've seen corporate profits uh, in the United States at least uh, surge. They've been very, very strong, but in large part not because the top line has been strong, but because they've cut costs uh, to a great degree. They've cut costs by cutting labor, by laying people off. So it would seem as though unless you have a very robust economy that's continuing to grow, that top line um, is not going to is not going to perform well. And, and there's only so much cutting you can do before you start to have... Uh, before you know, you run out of uh, the ability to increase profits that way, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I fully agree with this argument <clears throat> because when you look into the labor statistics, I mean, where are the jobs coming from? Um, uh, I think about seventy-five percent is is part-time jobs. So these are like uh, restaurants, uh, it's hospitality, uh, hospital clerks, uh, jobs like this, which don't pay a lot of uh, uh, salary and um, uh, when you really would say there is a real uh, recovery going on well with this kind of jobs which probably pay you twenty thirty thousand dollars a year you mm -hmm. will not be in a position to buy a house uh, mm -hmm. to get a mortgage to buy a car uh, yeah. these are jobs which are on the lower end of uh, yeah which are not compensated enough to get things really going these are low paid salary jobs and I don't think you can expect a recovery on the long term uh, from that. Yeah, not only that, but they don't really create wealth. Those are service jobs that are actually consuming the wealth that's been created in the past. But that's a macroeconomic issue. I just, uh, you're sitting there in Zurich, uh, Florian, and, and I have to ask you, what is your sense of uh, what's going on in Europe now? We're hearing rumors that probably the, um, Greece is going to need another bailout. Um, I'm going to be visiting Portugal with my wife where her mother lives in, in a little while, and I'll get a sense of what that place is like. But it, it seems to me that we're hearing an awful lot of happy talk on the mainstream media that doesn't seem to wash with what I'm reading and, and, and reading on the Internet and some lesser out-of-the-mainstream sources. What's your sense of what's going on in Europe now in terms of its overall economic uh, prospects? Yeah. Um, well, basically, you can, if you want to see some prosperity, um, you have to look at Germany. That's basically the isolated country which still benefits. Mm -hmm. It benefits basically from exports. Um, uh, to, uh, the, the, uh, to the U.S., but also to Asia. Uh, it, uh, it's well diversified. Um, it has been an export powerhouse for decades. Um, uh, they make their reforms uh, in, uh, around the millennium, so they are profiting from 
from that. Mm -hmm. But in the periphery, I would still say it's it's a depression. Yeah, I mean, if you have like unemployment, like in Spain of I don't know twenty seven percent, youth unemployment of fifty percent yeah. plus. It's wrong to call it a recession. People or politicians never use the word recession, <laughs> uh, never use the re uh, word depression. They still call it a recession, which is absolutely wrong. No, it, it's a depression uh, in the periphery. France today, they, had, uh, they announced the highest unemployment for about 15 years. Huh. And uh, France is probably like uh, the, yeah, the, the, the country that... Germany is probably also concerned about because France is not doing well as the second biggest economy. Italy is in a disaster. Um, uh, then Germany is left alone. And it's only a question for me until it will backfire to Germany as well because Europe is probably still the biggest uh, trading partner uh, of, of, German, of Germany. Right. Do you think uh, so? So, what are the prospects of the euro, the eurozone holding together now, Florian? In your view? Well, I think the key event will be uh, the election in Germany mm -hmm. for a Chancellor Merkel or a Steinbrück, the Social Democrat, in uh, this month in September. Um, of course, um, what they try to do, the, the running co coalition in Germany is, you know, keep the story quiet. Don't talk about Greece. Mm -hmm. Don't talk about uh, future potential bailouts. And you are right, there was a rumor that Greece will need another 10.5 billion, I guess, euros mm -hmm. um, as the next bailout package. But these things don't appear in the media right now. It's Interesting. very quiet. It's very quiet, and um, the media doesn't uh, get involved as well. Um, I think it will change uh, after the election, um, because from my feeling uh, that I have from uh, Germany is that about 70%, I would say, are just against further programs or bailouts right. for any uh, other nation. Because Germany bears about 40% of all the bailout money, it's a huge liability, and uh, it should be clear that money is not going to get back to Germany anytime soon. Right, but in order, the ruling elite obviously wants to hold the euro together, and uh, so Merkel's their person. They're going to try to to deceive the people as much as possible to keep them calm, to keep them uh, believing that um, that the powers that be can fix things and everything's going to come out all right. I guess that's the that's that's the modus operandi from these guys. Yeah, exactly. I mean, everybody uh, has a certain role to keep things together. Um, uh, the ECB uh, is uh, probably heavily intervening in the bond market to keep rates low. Otherwise, those bank, uh, those countries like Italy, Spain, uh, they would have been bankrupt already a long time ago. But there is intervention at every corner. Um, uh, the problems are are being talked down. So it's not clear how it will pay out in the short term because there is so much intervention. Um, the positive thing on the other side uh, is that um, some of these countries, they start to reform themselves, which they haven't for the last 50 or 60 years. Labor markets are um, uh, getting reformed. Uh, there's a uh, getaway of minimum wages. Um, to attract um, uh, economic uh, activity. Um, but I think that's a very long process. It won't happen tomorrow. Yeah. And 
Uh, I don't know whether it will come too late. Well, a lot of resistance to change. That's the human. Uh, that's the human condition, I suppose. We, we, you know, we become comfortable, and especially uh, socialism is is very comfortable for a large number of people because it means that they don't have to worry about anything, right? So it's 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 very appealing uh, to the regressive nature of human beings, I would say. But in any event, you talked about a depression, and I agree with you, Florian. It seems to me that. When you have those levels of unemployment, to call it a recession is, uh, you know, it's just another political trick. Uh, but we have depressions, which, you know, I think that's what you've got in parts of Europe. The main question, and I know you and I have talked about this before, how does this pathological economic system that's based on socialism and Keynesian socialism, how is this thing going to work its way out? Is it going to work its way out through the fires of hyperinflation, or are we going to see a deflationary depression, uh, or, or is it hard to tell? What are, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I would rather be in the deflationary camp. The, the <laughs> deflationary camp, Florian? The, uh, the deflationary camp, yeah. yeah. Right. Um, the only I, inflation I see is basically in stocks, in asset prices. Uh, uh-huh. So uh, the well-to-do people, they benefit but uh, the average man on the street is uh, probably seeing his salary under pressure. Mm-hmm. Real wages are in decline also in Europe. And um, uh, if you earn less, if your tax bill goes up, uh, if you get less government subsidies, obviously you can afford less. So I would say um, banks are not willing to lend. And mm-hmm. The average household has less money in the pocket and with that, I don't see really um, the chance for hyperinflation. Mm-hmm. So I would rather say um, people, yeah, be very reluctant how they spend their money. Uh, there is credit crunch in, in the periphery in Europe. Uh, and unless banks are really getting all these excess reserves they hold at the central bank and get this out to companies or private individuals to make loans, and which I don't really don't see happening. I think uh, we are uh, in a in a deflationary spiral or in, in a deflationary situation. Well, you know, Florian, that uh, I, what you're talking about there, I, I guess, is from a European perspective. We're certainly seeing it in the United States. We're seeing it with the banking system in the U.S. The money is staying in uh, in the banking system. The reserves, excess reserves, are. You know, just have just skyrocketed. Banks are not lending it out. You, what you're saying is the same thing is happening in Europe. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. It's so, very uh, much, very much like we had from what I read in the 1930s. The banks, huge amounts of money was pumped into the system. Uh, you, you know, we we certainly do have inflation here. I think you're, the key is the real wages, as you pointed out. You know, if you look at John Williams' work here, he's suggesting that our inflation rate is eight nine percent. If you uh, if you if you do away with hedonic pricing, if you do away with uh, substitution and the other gimmicks that the government uses to try to make it look as if inflation isn't uh, isn't out of hand, and 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 so I don't know about Europe, but you know we're finding, for example, medical costs going up very dramatically, educational costs going up very dramatically in the U.S., uh, and and food and energy costs generally are going up. All those costs are going up much more rapidly than people's salaries. So you hit on the real. Wages are in decline. The middle class is in decline, and so we're seeing um, this effective demand, to use a Keynesian term, is continuing to de- to decrease. And I, I agree with you. I have a hard time seeing hyperinflation, 
But um, but you know, you said I you said you would rather see it that way. When you say you'd rather see it that way, you're, that's your your emotional preference or the way you see it intellectually. I would say this is when I see it intellectually based on the system as it is right now. Um, I think I can understand that um, there is no, I mean, you need to grow uh, credit in order to get inflation, and this is what uh, every central bank wants. Um, but um, I don't see that, uh, I don't see that happening. Uh, it's, um, the situation is really stuck, right. um, uh, and uh, unless um, there is a prospect for, uh, for real growth, uh, I think banks will be reluctant to lend any money. Yeah, corporation that doesn't make sense. Yeah, well, you're certainly seeing uh, the velocity of money. That is, people hanging on to what they've got. As you said, as you're making your twenty, thirty thousand dollars salaries, don't allow you to go out and with any extras. So I think people just hanging on to what they've got. They can't spend. So I'm I'm in your camp, Flora, and we do have John Williams in this show from time to time, and he's on the other side of it. And John's argument is the U.S. dollar is going to collapse, and when the U.S. dollar collapses, that's when we will have hyperinflation. What's your sense about the dollar? How long can the U.S. dollar remain the world's reserve currency? Um, that's a very difficult question because I think the, the dollar is getting uh, involved in kind in some kind like, uh, you know, the, the Chinese, they hold probably $3 trillion worth of treasury bills and notes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the game is, as I see it, every nation has a vital interest to devalue its currency because it's an international economy uh, and you only can grow your economy by boosting exports. So the trick is uh, devaluation. And uh, I think that is what every country tries to do. And, of course, uh, the U.S. Uh, does the same. Um, on the other hand... With uh, rates going up in the U.S., um, uh, it uh, seems to be going in the opposite direction. Like today, we see uh, a good spike in rates, and the dollar index is up around 1%. Mm-hmm. And I think that is exactly the opposite what politicians really want. Um, but the market eventually will dictate uh, a higher dollar. I would be very current level probably bullish on the dollar mm-hmm. less less bullish on other currencies well emerging market currencies have collapsed already yes the euro i don't know but it's a, a flight to uh, to uh, so-called safety and uh, liquidity and i think dollar will stay as a reserve currency for the time being mm-hmm. not because it's a very good currency but it's the least worst that you can probably mm-hmm. get yeah you know, as long as they can keep the uh, paper game going, and I think it is also interesting that, uh, uh, you know, when the day we're doing this interview, we've seen the dollar, uh, we've seen interest rates rise very dramatically, U.S. Treasury rates and gold going down at the same time. I, um, but I think a key is the real interest rate, I mean, the real, uh, yeah, the real interest rate, right? So we in the 1970s, for example, Florian, uh, the rates were rising dramatically, but so was gold along with it. But we had negative rates, uh, real rates of interest. Um, I guess it depends an awful lot on whose inflation numbers you use as to you know, what extent we have negative rates in the U.S., but I would think we still have negative rates in the U.S. to a great extent. Yeah, I think so. When I look at some numbers from the Federal Reserve Bank of uh, St. Louis, 
Um, the, the, the period 1971 to 1981 was basically almost uh, negative real rates. So in about 54% of all months in that period, rates were negative. And that was uh, a very good time for gold. Uh, the same is true since 2001 until 2013. So today, um, we have about 56% uh, of all months with negative real rates. Mm -hmm. And we have also seen a big appreciation in spite of the recent correction of the gold price uh, in gold. Um, now, we're, if you're on the deflation side, so am I, but here's the question for you. Is it going to be a, a Gary Schilling type of a deflation, a sort of a mild deflation or something more scary like post-Lehman Brothers? And I think this is important, Florian, and you tell me if you agree that um, if we have a massive scary deflation post-Lehman Brothers, that's really good for the real price of gold. And to me, uh, that is very important as one who invests in gold mining companies. Do you, what do you see here? Uh, do you, I mean, do you see prospects for this whole thing coming unglued and there's a massive uh, race away from, uh, you know, back into currency to the margin clerk calls and requires debts to be paid? Do you think that's something that we're going to see more of? I wouldn't have expected uh, some kind of a deflationary event uh, already uh, much longer ago. And mm -hmm. I'm still very puzzled that uh, uh, how markets have been really, uh, or how markets are getting intervened constantly by policymakers and uh, how basically the public believes um, uh, into uh, the inflationary success of their interventions. Mm -hmm. But um, I. I wouldn't rule out to see uh, a decent correction um, uh, coming along in the fall. Uh, my problem with the overall market is, and I would say uh, we count commodities, stocks and bonds into this. I mean, this is where uh, purchasing power is created in this kind of uh, money printing economy. It's not coming from wage growth, but it's coming from rising asset prices. Um, I think uh, what we would, uh, what I would suggest is that the real earnings growth is probably going to disappoint. As you said before, um, top-line growth is uh, probably going to decline or become negative. Um, companies can still cut their costs, but uh, if there are no more costs to save uh, and uh, your top-line doesn't grow anymore, and the market has to readjust to the fundamentals sooner or later. And um, just fundamentally, I cannot see equities getting much higher from here. I think we have seen the high. Uh, and uh, that, on, of course, is by itself more deflationary already. Mm -hmm. All right, so let's let's. Uh, what's your outlook then for the real price of gold? I mean, I to me, the real price of gold is more important, and I guess you can measure that in different ways. Uh, one of the ways I measure it is against the Rogers Raw Materials Fund, and I think I've spoken to you about this. But after Lehman Brothers, we saw a very dramatic rise in the real price of gold, gold relative to oil and materials costs and all of that, and we saw the mining company profits surge. But more recently, we've seen the opposite happen. Uh, you know, as energy prices and materials prices have have risen relative to gold, and we've seen mining company profits uh, 
fall very dramatically, actually. So where do you see this going now? I mean, you your fund invests in gold and silver mining companies. Where do you see uh, do you see better prospects in terms of earnings for the for the mining companies uh, ahead of us? And and would that come with a uh, a major decline in the real uh, in the equity markets and the other markets again, like as it did post Lehman Brothers? I think um, the uh, when we talk to uh, companies or when we go and visit the uh, mining projects, um, <clears throat> there have been, with the rising gold price, uh, the industry made a lot of mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they invested capital into uh, projects that are really became marginal mm-hmm. assets because uh, CapEx was underestimated, costs were underestimated, and um, they were basically building these projects on wrong assumptions. So I think that is um, a major problem for rising costs in the industry. It has not necessarily to do with rising uh, input costs to a certain degree, yes. Cyanide, uh, steel, contracting costs, uh, trucks, everything went up, uh, mm-hmm. sometimes even higher than the gold price. But those costs are now coming down since uh, the middle of last year. Mm-hmm. The biggest uh, Mistakes those company made were probably they designed their projects the wrong way uh, mm-hmm. by um, assuming higher outputs, by underestimating capital, and all this created headaches. Um, uh, budget uh, budgets were not realistic. Uh, they had to spend more and more. Um, uh, they had to issue new shares one after another uh, round. And um, of course, uh, the uh, the investor uh, on the street realized that um, the industry was probably over bullish, and had to reset their expectations. So right now, I would say we see deflationary pressure in the industry. Um, mm-hmm. uh, we see contractors um, uh, getting uh, much less uh, for uh, work for working for a, for a mining company. You see that contractors are cancelled, and the industry and some of the companies take uh, do the work in-house uh, themselves. Uh, so that will all contribute to better costs. And of course, we see steel coming off. Um, energy uh, costs are getting cheaper because there is a lot of excess capacity also in the base metal industry, which is not doing well. Uh, so to come back to your real price of gold. Um, uh, or, Although we had a significant drop this year, um, I think what we see are bottom line in the industry. It's rather encouraging. So these companies can adjust to lower gold prices, and they have the possibility to to bring down their costs operationally, but also based on lower input costs. Mm-hmm. So the prospects uh, should be improving uh, as the companies work out these. Uh, these mistakes that were made, I think, for larger projects with lower grades and so forth, there's a sort of a reversal of that. We've seen some, also seen some write-downs, some significant write-downs. Florian, where do you think the best prospects are going forward for mining companies? I, uh, the largest ones, or do you think something in the mid-tier area might be more, more beneficial to focus there? Where are you focusing mm-hmm. for your fund? Um, we still like the, the mid-tier space, um, which which has also suffered heavy, uh, heavy uh, write-offs. Mm-hmm. And overall, I think by the second uh, quarter, June 30th, there were about $22 billion of uh, asset impairments, goodwill write-offs. Hmm. 
So I think uh, overall these balance sheets are now looking much more clean than before. Mm-hmm. Um, but we see some companies which uh, have done massive write-offs as well. So they probably wrote up 50% of their equity. And uh, this is basically due to two things. One is um, uh, some of their uh, production assets were written down based on the lower gold price. But they have also written down a lot of exploration assets uh, just because they think they will not spend any money in the foreseeable future. And um, when you would bet for a higher gold price, these are book entries, so uh, it has nothing to do with cash flow. But the asset is still there, but you show uh, a lower value in your balance sheet. And this, I think, provides also some opportunities if you can look into uh, some of these mid-tier companies uh, which have done significant write-offs, sometimes half a billion, $250 million. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we assume that gold goes back sometime to 14, 1500, mm-hmm. these projects are still there. Sometimes they even permit it and those companies have the possibility to fast-track them and bring them into production. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the market has no expectations uh, for this kind of movements in the, for the foreseeable time. But uh, it could provide an opportunity because it could mean uh, growing your production by investing uh, relatively moderate capital expenditure. Yeah. Uh, and with the bigger companies, uh, I think the strategic decisions to, to bring a four or five billion project on takes just much longer. It's much more complex, and um, uh, these companies are probably less flexible to uh, to readjust uh, should gold price uh, gold prices uh, go back again to fifteen sixteen hundred. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting time. I think a very opportune time right now. You know, the really successful investors are those that can step in when nobody else wants to buy things, recognize value. And I know that your fund has done very well. I believe you told me that your your fund was one of the few that actually entered uh, the few gold funds that actually uh, came out on positive territory. Uh, was it last year or so far this year? Last year in dollars, yes. <laughs> uh-huh. Excellent. Well, that's that's really good. I, I know that you do good work there, Florian. You know, we only have a couple of minutes left here, uh, and you have a whole list of, well, not a whole list. There's several companies that I know that you like a lot, and uh, we just don't have the time to cover them. So I'm going to hope to have you back in a couple of weeks, and we can maybe go over some of these names. But just before we go, what would be one of your, say, your top pick right now? Um, well, uh, one company that uh, we like um, basically because it fits that pattern uh, with uh, massive write-offs is uh, an Australian uh, silver pr- uh, gold producer. It's called Silver Lake Resources. I mm-hmm. think it has a U.S. listing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it is uh, a company with Australian assets. Um, uh, the production is about 200,000 ounces roughly. Um, but they took a big impairment charge of about 352 million just, I think, in the June quarter. Mm-hmm. 
and um, uh, that um, reflects the opportunity in our review. The share is, it's one of the worst performing shares uh, this mm -hmm. year. This is why we bought it mm -hmm. um, because uh, it has uh, operationally they have done very well over the past few years. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it has a big uh, institutional holding management owns about seven percent. Mm -hmm. But uh, when we would expect sometimes in the near future gold will turn around back up. They have the capacity to bring one of their projects that is written off now back into production, mm -hmm. uh, which would add about 70,000 ounces of annual output for a capital for around 20 million uh, Australian dollars. Mm. Okay. And uh, another point I would uh, also suggest to your audience is um, that you, some of these companies are getting more and more transparent. So usually we have to depend on cash, co cash costs in the, in the last few years. We never knew what is actually the real cost of mm -hmm. producing one ounce. Now, those kind of companies, including Silver Lake, uh, they have the new accounting metrics from the World Gold Council, and they report all in sustaining costs per ounce. Very so, good. Uh, and still on that metric, they are making about, in my view, at least $200 net margin per ounce before taxes. With current price, current gold prices around 1350 or so? Yeah, around 1300 yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. All right, well, thank you, uh, Florian. We, I'm sorry we're out of time because there's several other names that I wanted to ask you about, and I, I hope we can have you back again sometime soon uh, to discuss more of the, uh, of the companies that you are following uh, and investing in your fund. I want to thank you very much for being with us today, and uh, we'll do it again sometime soon, I hope. Yeah, sure. My pleasure, Jay. Excellent. Thank you very much. Well, folks, don't go away, because I'll be right back with Darren Wagner. He's the president and CEO of Balmoral Resources. It's a company with a project in Quebec. It's been, uh, well, they've been showing some very, very uh, significant assays, gold assays recently, so don't go away. We'll be right back with Darren Wagner. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network in this climate of increasing global economic uncertainty just one safe haven remains precious metals led by a strong proven management team prophecy platinum is actively developing the well-green platinum group metals nickel and copper property a large, easily accessible deposit in the Yukon with an estimated resource of 1 million ounces of PGM and gold indicated and a further 11 million ounces inferred. Large deposit, excellent infrastructure, impressive drill results, and increasing international demand. To learn more about Prophecy Platinum and the Wellgreen Project, visit prophecyplat.com. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network.
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me for the first time Darren Wagner. He's the president and CEO of Balmoral Resources. Uh, Darren is a professional geologist with 20 years of exploration and corporate development experience. He spent the first 10 years of his career with two of Canada's largest and the most successful exploration and mining companies. That uh, is Noranda, now Exatra, uh, uh, Extrata, and Cominco, which is now Tech. Uh, he worked there as a project geologist and manager in North and South America. In 1999, uh, Darren became Vice President of Explorations for New Millennium Metals, uh, Metals Corporation. In 2005, he became President of Sydney Resources Corp and helped engineer the successful merger between Sydney and Band, and Band Ore Resources to form West Timmins Mining, Inc., uh, where he served as President and CEO and Director through the discovery of the high-grade Thunder Creek Gold Zone in Timmins, Ontario, uh, and uh, the acquisition then of West Timmins by Lakeshore Gold. Darren recently um, serves uh, has recently served as director of Druck Capital Partners and as a technical uh, and corporate advisor to several other public companies, uh, companies such as Mag Silver Corp and uh, Metals Creek Resources Corp. Um, but really his primary, primary function now is as President and CEO uh, of Balmoral Resources. It's uh, good to have you with me, Darren. Thanks, Jay, and I appreciate the opportunity to come on. Well, it's, I think you have a really great story. I should tell our listeners that your company is a recommendation in my own newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. I do own the stock myself. I purchased some for my, uh, for my IRA, uh, my retirement account. Uh, we should tell our listeners that there are approximately 84.8 million shares outstanding, trading today at about 52 cents, giving a market cap of about $45 million or so. Uh, 13% of the stock, roughly 13%, is owned by management. Always a good thing. I like to see uh, management have skin in the game, so their interests are aligned with mine. And there's something like uh, 17 to 20% of institutional holdings. So uh, those would be more, t- probably more tightly held shares, so you can sort of figure that Maybe there's something more like 50, 40, or 50 million shares in the float. Um, Darren, uh, you're actively involved uh, in gold exploration in what is known as the Abitibi Greenstone Belt, which is certainly you know, one of the most prolific gold-producing regions in, um, in eastern Canada, well, in Ontario, Quebec anyway. What is it about this region that has, made it, uh, has really allowed it to host so much gold? Well, I think one of the really special things about the Abitibi that kind of separates it from from most of the other belts across the planet is is the uh, is the grade of the deposits there. So, the Abitibi has a fairly unique plumbing system, a whole bunch of, of very large scale structures that rip through it, right down to the core of the planet. We're able to pump fluids up into the near surface, and you know the Abitibi has been producing uh, gold mines for a hundred years. The average grade in there basically quarter ounce so it's it's uh, you know eight grams you hear a lot of guys talking about you know one gram mineralization Mm -hmm. or leaching half gram stuff down in nevada when we're dealing with the abitibi you're dealing with stuff that's that's eight eight grams uh, a ton or a quarter an ounce is the average grade for the belt so that's that's fairly unique on the planet and and makes it a really special place uh, for gold mines 
Yeah, how did you, was this a discovery that you made or was it something that somebody had worked on previously and you come along and picked up the property or, or, or what? The original, the, the discoveries that we're working on in the north end of the Abitibi, uh, I mean, credit where credit is due, the initial gold discoveries on the property were actually by a, a group called Cypress Canada, which was a subsidiary mm. of a U.S.-based company called Cypress, who were up, actually up there were look, looking for base metals. So they were mm. uh, busy drilling uh, anomalies, looking for base metals, because there's a large open pit base metal mine just south of us, came across a, a gold-bearing structure, really wasn't what they were focused on, um, put a few drill holes in it, didn't have a whole lot of success following it up, um, but that's one of the advantages of having a team that's very experienced in this area. When they went in and saw the work that had been done previously, they said, actually, we think we can put our hands around this, and we think this is, you know, come back and say, here's here's how we think it's actually sitting in the ground. And sure enough, uh, as we've turned the drills loose, that's, uh, you know, they, they've been correct, and we've been able to start uh, growing out the, uh, the high-grade resources there at Martinair. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the Martinier property is your, I guess, your flagship, you'd call it. You do have some other properties, and if we have time, we'll get to that. Uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about those. But what, what can you tell us about the Martinier gold system and the, well, the various mineralized zones that you've, been, that you've located to date? What says something about their grades and widths? Yeah, so, I mean, we, we really start with, with looking at, uh, at things on a, on a belt scale. So we own a very large land package. It extends for about 600 uh, square kilometers mm. and sits immediately adjacent to what's now Canada's biggest mine, which is, which is Detour Gold, which is now yeah. in full commercial production. Martinair is about 40 kilometers, about halfway in that land package. And it's, it is a, you know, becoming a fairly large, high-grade system. So, we are seeing uh, grades out of the drill holes, typically between three and up to almost 300 grams, mm. so you know almost 10 ounces uh, per ton out of these intercepts, and they're ranging anywhere from about three meters wide to 15 meters wide. There mm. are a number of uh, individual zones within this broader system: uh, the Martinair West and, and Bug Lake, the two most advanced ones that we that we have sort of names for. But again, you know. Much like uh, the other deposits in the Abitibi, if, if we sit down and and put a, a you know average sort of intercept grade on it right now, I think we come in at about seven point nine six. So we're mm-hmm. basically um, bang eight on, grams. yeah, basically bang on uh, belt average grade. Which you know, look, we look further down the belt at detour. Detour is sub gram, uh, about point nine eight, and we are eight point something. So I think we're, you know, it's a classic Abitibi style system, multiple zones, um, all of them with grade, and all of them open. And, and the one thing we know about the deposits in the Abitibi is they tend to have tremendous vertical extent. Some of these things are now being mined at uh, 3,000 meters vertical depth. We're just scratching the surface so far. We're down at about 300 meters uh, vertical depth with the drilling to date, uh, but they're all uh, they're all open. So it's it's been an exciting uh, exciting series of discoveries on the Martin Air property, and uh, you know made more so by the work we're doing right now. The mineralization come right up to surface or close to surface? You've gone down 300 meters, but is it how close to surface is it? Yeah, it actually comes right to the bedrock surface. So it, in the mm-hmm. area that we're working, it's extraordinarily flat, um, and there is uh, overburden or dirt cover. Um, that ranges anywhere from about uh, six meters to twenty meters, but all of the zones that we've discovered to date um, actually come to that bedrock surface. So they come right to the surface of the rock, which would mean, 
you know, down the road a little bit as we start to think about, you know, how are you going to develop these things, they will be very quick access to them. Uh, you'll be able to ramp right into, uh, right into them at the shallowest level. So that's another plus for, uh, for, uh, for the zones that we're working on right now. Yeah, no question about it. But then, uh, but you don't see an open pit situation here at this stage. It looks like it'd be, and you will then, uh, well, it's too early to know. I realize this, but as you see it now, you, uh, you you mentioned detour is sub one gram. I think you said, but they are really going out, and that's a gigantic open pit. What you're talking about here, I think, is more like um, individual zones that might have good widths and all. But uh, would you, at this early stage, think you'll mine those by? Uh, the the, ind- the individual zones, or do you think there's a possibility of of something really big, um, like like they've got a detour? Well, I think I, I think your your previous guest actually addressed this issue a little bit in in terms of uh, the planning on things. The industry as a whole got into a space where um, I, I like to use the phrase "ounces or us" was the name of the game. <laughs> so the more ounces you had, the better. The more you got paid in the market. Um, somewhere along the lines there, the concept of profit of mm-hmm. a mining operation got lost, and, and it, you know, Florian addressed that a little bit too. And uh, you know, when we look at the history of the Abitibi, um, the concentration has been on the underground ramp or, or shaft, underground mining of these high-grade ore bodies, and that that for a hundred years, that's been a profitable exercise because of that very high grade. So. I think our our gut feeling at this point is that's what you're looking at here. Mm-hmm. Um, the metal price may permit you to look at small starter pits or things like that. I don't see a I don't necessarily see a detour uh, type massive open pit here, um, but I do see you you know we do see pretty clear opportunity for a high grade underground type situation. Um, more along the lines of perhaps what what Gold Corp's planning to do to the north of us at Eleanor, which is uh, is another high grade one that's that's just in the next uh, belt north. So that's kind of I think where this is this has headed. Having said that, we've just outlined uh, and, and reported out this week uh, that we've outlined a very large uh, geophysical anomaly that seems to underlie a small part of the area we've drilled to date, but which is open down to the south for for well over a kilometer and a half and uh well it's too early for us to say you know link them positively there is a direct spatial association between the gold mineralization we know about and that we've drilled and mm-hmm. this large fe- untested feature so we're pretty excited about that and what it might represent but i think at this point really you know let's let's talk about something that could be profitably extracted mm-hmm. out of the ground mm-hmm. and uh at at those kind of grades uh you're probably looking then at, at you know looking at the underground uh, any studies done on the metallurgy? Any any sense of uh, if there's any issues there? No, we're just starting to arc into that. We're still, you know, started in the fairly early. We haven't even done the first resource report on on that. Yeah. So that's part of the test work that goes on. Uh, now that we've confirmed that these are, you know, significant discoveries, and we're going to be able to build out some ounces here, um, that'll be part of the test work that go on either uh, over the end of, end part of the summer, early part of next year is to get a, a number of holes out to uh, to look at. Typically in the Abitibi, there aren't a whole lot of problems. Occasionally you'll run into, uh, you know, run into one, but typically these things are pretty clean to uh, to work with. Free milling in many cases, good, yeah, good portion free, of it. Yeah, I think often you'll see, you know, half the gold come out just by throwing a gravity circuit at it, circuit at it 30 40% of the gold just by throwing gravity, you know, just by mm-hmm. crushing it up and tabling it. So, because it, it tends to be a fair bit of, uh, you know, uh, fairly coarse gold 
sitting in uh, in these systems. Is there a, a nuggeting issue that that you can see here? Because you mentioned a variation from yeah, three grams I mean, to three hundred. There definitely. I mean, we definitely do see we do see some extraordinary values from time to time. Uh, you know, we will see you know two three hundred gram assays from time to time. So you do have to work those. Uh, you know, work those out when you do the resource estimate. Those will get capped out in the resource estimate. But I think in in general, no, the stuff, the material hasn't been hasn't had a, a large degree of variation. It does have a a separate population up there at the top end that uh, will have to be capped out. But in terms of internal variation, which is really where you talk about a lot of you know nuggety behavior, no, this stuff has been pretty consistent. In terms of returning consistently high grade, but there is a separate population up there in that sort of 100 gram plus level that you do have to kind of adapt to when you do the 43101 estimates. It's all visible gold, which means you will get it when you go to mine it. But mm-hmm. in terms of delivering a resource estimate to fit yeah. into the parameters, uh, you will have to cap that stuff out. Statistical issue. When do you expect you're going to have the uh, your research your first resource calculation? I think we'd probably be looking for it sometime, uh, sometime next year. I think we were, we were on a pretty good drive to uh, to try and get one out by year end. Uh, obviously, uh, as your listeners are well aware, the market's been a little challenged, uh, <laughs> so we've had to, you know, like everybody else in the space, basically had to slow our pace down a little bit. So the decision was was made here that uh, it was more important to continue to grow the system, demonstrate its size, than to do the infill drilling that you need to do to to get to the resource. That there's more, uh, you know, upside in the near term for the investors uh, in the story, out of making the thing bigger than there is necessarily in filling and, and printing that number right now. So I think that has been pushed back a little bit. You never like to do that, but you don't also like to see the space go through what it's gone through in the last uh, several oh. months either. So uh, they just absolutely. push that back a little bit. It gives us uh, a chance to get our arms around a bigger, you know, a bigger chunk. Um, to do that update on, I think that's ultimately it's ultimately more important to our investors that it's of significant, you know, sufficient size um, to merit uh, development or M and A as as the case may be uh, than it is to get that resource right now. Darren, how much money do you have in the till? We just got about a minute left. Yeah, so we've got eight, uh, we've got about eight million dollars in the in the treasury that's right good. now. I think there's another half a million actually committed to the program at the moment. So we're mm-hmm. active. We're up there drilling right now. We'll have steady news flow uh, starting in the next few weeks from the drills and on in through the fall and uh, and into next year. So uh, we're well financed and we're active and we've got a great project in a great place. So we should be expecting some drill results on a fairly ongoing uh, ongoing basis, or, or yeah, once they once you once you start to get the first ones, which hopefully will be sometimes toward to, toward the end of the month uh, or, mm-hmm. or very latest early next month, then you should you know sort of consistently see them right the way through uh, through Christmas off this program, and by that time we'll have the uh, the drills back up and uh, running again. Yeah, and again, the Martinier project is your flagship, probably your most advanced at this stage, but you also have some others like the Fenelon prospect, and I'm looking at some eye-bulging uh, assays there, 97.33 grams over 6.19 meters. I mean, that's pretty impressive. That's not bad when that's, when, when that's your second-tier project and you can produce results <laughs> like that. That's not too bad. And then you got the Grasset. So there's lots of things to look at. Um, your website would be what, so people can follow up? It would be www.balmoralresources.com, and it's uh, we're also doing the the modern thing with the Twitter and the Facebook and, and the rest. So uh, excellent, you can find us. So people can keep track of what you're doing. Thank you very much, Darren. Uh, lots to keep track of, and uh, I hope we can talk to you again sometime. Thank you very right. much. Thank you very much, Jay. 
Folks, don't go away. I'll be right back with some closing thoughts on today's show and also a word about next week's guests. Don't go away. Be right back. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Golden Arrow Resources on the TSX Exchange has recently made a new silver discovery and is presently drilling a 6,500-meter program on that discovery. A maiden resource calculation is expected to be released in April of this year. The project is located in Jujuy Province in northern Argentina, just 30 kilometers from the Perquitas Mine operated by Silver Standard. Golden Arrow has an experienced team with decades of experience in Argentina. Golden Arrow offers shareholders exceptional leverage with an exciting new silver discovery. SGX Resources is an exploration gold company with multiple advanced exploration projects in the Timmins Gold Camp. Recent high-grade intersections at SGX's Tully Deposit include 14 meters at 20.1 grams per ton and 17.6 meters at 11.1 grams per ton. The deposit is currently more than 600 meters along strike with a depth of up to 250 meters and remains open in all directions. SGX Resources trades on the TSX Venture Exchange with the trading symbol SXR. Visit our website at www.sgxresources.com. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questions4taylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, uh, with some comments about today's show uh, and a word about next week. Uh, Ellen Brown, always very interesting lady. Uh, I think you would do well to uh, check out her website, uh, read what she has to say. Uh, a critical, independent thinker uh, who I think has really understands very well what's going on in the banking industry. She uh, has done an extreme amount of, of research, uh, thoroughly footnotes, thoroughly documents her views uh, and what's going on. And I think there is no question that there's a relationship between uh, our wars overseas and the banking interest and the military-industrial complex. We talk about that frequently on this show. Certainly, uh, Daniel McAdams will be with us uh, hopefully next week uh, to talk, uh, pick up where he left off uh, in terms of uh, the Syrian conflict, uh, the potential conflict of the United States getting into Syria. But I think Ellen provided some very good uh, ideas along those lines. Uh, we may have Jim Willie on the show sometime in the near future. I just read a piece from Jim Willie. Uh, talking about uh, the relationship of energy to the conflict um, uh, and uh, the superpowers, let's say uh, those outside of the Western uh, alliance uh, that are really at odds with and looking to compete with uh, others. And that's really, I believe, the reason most wars are fought. It really boils down to economics. They will try to convince us uh, that we should sacrifice our treasury and our lives for some higher calling but really, folks, when you think about it, Jimmy Carter says that the United States does not currently have a working democracy. Then why are we going overseas? We fought World War I to make the world safe for democracy. Oh, did we? 
Uh, and now we're not even allowing our own citizens to have the most basic human rights that are being taken away from us, spying on us. Uh, in, and I think very seriously um, the issue that Ellen suggested last week with Elliot Spitzer and the reason they exposed his indiscretions uh, uh, simply was because he was he was going to get in the way of the bankers' theft uh, and how they are continuing to uh, to basically uh, to basically steal from the population. I mean, I, I can't see it any other way. Printing of money reallocates wealth. That's uh, an obvious one to me. That when as the Fed prints endless amounts of money, the people in control of that money are able to wrestle wealth away from the people that produce it—the miners, the manufacturers, the farmers, the inventors. And away it goes to the bankers and to the politicians. That's the game. And uh, that remark from uh, Professor Quigley, I think, was extremely uh, eye-opening. And uh, I don't uh, – well, here it is. I'm going to read it once more. The powers of financial capitalism had another far-reaching aim, nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands – Able, the do, able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. And so it is that all of the legislation that's being proposed, all of the trade agreements and so forth, have that end of taking away individual sovereignty, as Ellen talked about, taking away the sovereignty of individual nations to regulate their own financial markets. That is part of what has been taken over by the World Trade Organization, other organizations that are headed by this group of people, and Ellen said they, Professor Quigley, said it's the large banking interest, the large global interest, uh, international banking interest. So that's what we're up against, folks. We have to play uh, the hand that we're given, though, and so that's why we wanted to talk to uh, Florian Siegfried, who will be back with us next week as well. Uh, he will return. I'm hoping to have uh, Daniel McAdams back as well. And we're going to have uh, a fellow, for the first time, Paul Usum. Uh, he is the author of The Gold and Silver Analyst to, to be with as well. Uh, we really want to try to figure out how we can best preserve our capital at this time when it is being assaulted by the establishment uh, in which the major powers uh, that be are trying to really to rape and pillage the middle class uh, like parasites taking away from the average people and taking away our democracy as even a former president now admits we no longer have a democracy as was reported in Der Spiegel. No, our press did not report that. Der Spiegel did and that was taken from a remark he made in Atlanta before a group of a trade group of Germans. But we are out of time. I do want to thank each of you for listening. Thanks Tacy Trump, my producer, Matt Widener, my engineer for making this show logistically possible. And so until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.